Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday from May 3rd, 2021. Here's today's rundown. The ALJs and Medicare Appeals Council have created a perpetual appeals machine. Senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen looks under the hood to find out why the process is broken. That's our lead story. President Joe Biden addressed both houses of Congress last week. So what's the latest healthcare regulatory news in Washington? Matthew Albright has a legislative update. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Ellen Tigsamnik, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the program host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Last week, CMS released the 2022 proposed inpatient perspective payment the IPPS. And in a remarkable about-face, CMS is now proposing to eliminate the requirement that hospitals must reveal negotiated rates it reaches with Medicare Advantage plans. It was a requirement that became effective January 1st of this year. The proposed rule would also require hospitals to report vaccinations among hospital staff. On the vaccine front, the CDC reports that fully vaccinated adults 65-plus are now 94% less likely to be hospitalized with COVID-19. In the meantime, travelers should avoid travel to India. That, according to the CDC, warning that even fully vaccinated travelers may be at risk for getting and spreading COVID-19. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ron Hirsch, who returns to Monitor Monday to make his Monday rounds. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Thanks to Dr. Hall for sitting in for me. I I hope he provided the right amount of snarkiness that you've all come to expect to start your week. Today, I have several things to talk about. First, if you participate in the Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement Program, CJR, CMS just released the proposed rule for 2022. First, outpatient hips and knee replacements will be included so physicians will no longer feel compelled to admit these patients as inpatients simply to get access to their shared savings. They're also allowing outpatients in the program to go to a SNF for Part A care without any inpatient stay at all, even after COVID. Now, there's a lot of other changes, so be sure to read the full proposal if you're part of the program. Second, there was an interesting lawsuit filed last week. A pain, pain management physician underwent a UPIC audit, and they found a very high error rate. As a result, they extrapolated the findings. In this case, they extrapolated the $14,419 overpayment to a total of $5.9 million. $14,000 to $5.9 million. Now, he's suing because he says that immediate recoupment would bankrupt him. Now, I'm not Frank Cohen, and I will not venture to analyze the extrapolation. And the last place I want to be is moderating a battle between two statisticians. But there's some other interesting findings in this case. First, it is clear that this physician did not document the medical necessity for many of the procedures he performed. In fact, in some cases, he gave injections for arthritis, and the x-ray findings that he submitted indicated the absence of arthritis. There were also several office visits denied with the auditor noting there is no chief complaint, no history of present illness, no review systems, and no exam documented. There were also several pages just full of dots. Now, when I look at this physician in the billing database, 90% of his office 
visits were billed as a 99213. While not intrinsically bad, it does suggest that he may have been undercoding to try and stay under the radar. Guess it didn't work. Next, every three months, the COVID waivers get renewed, and the ones that get the most attention are the SNF waivers. Well, on May 10th, SNF waivers are ending. Now, before you panic, the waiver for the three-day inpatient stay is not ending. Now, let me repeat that. The SNF waiver is not ending, but the waivers for SNFs to move patients to other rooms or other facilities without notification and for the time limit to complete their MDS are ending. Now, while we all want the three-day waiver to persist forever, if its ending means the end of the pandemic, I'm all for it. Now, you probably know that the 2022 IPPS proposed rule was also released last week. With 1,914 pages, it's full of information. But for our listeners, the important finding was that the word midnight only appears once. So that means there's no changes to the two midnight rule. There's lots of the usual kind of changes to payment rates and DRG assignments. And I'm sure the Top 10 Tuesday crew will be all over that. But in my mind, payment changes are what they are. We all have only so much bandwidth, so I leave that to others. Back to you, Chuck. Glad to be back. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. It's great to have you back. That was the vice president of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. I've got three quick announcements. Uh, number one, on April 27th, CMS proposed a rule to increase Medicare fee-for-service payment rates. I said it, increase. This is for inpatient hospitals and long-term care hospitals for fiscal year 2022. The proposed rule will, will update Medicare payment policies and rates for operating and capital-related costs of acute care hospitals. Number two, a sample audit of nursing homes conducted by CMS indicated that approximately two-thirds of Massachusetts's nursing homes that receive federal Medicaid and Medicare funding are lagging in required annual inspections. And the Massachusetts audit is demonstrative of the country. So nursing homes expect more audits. According to this audit, the sample audit, 237 nursing homes and long-term care facilities, or 63.7% of the total, are behind on their federal health and safety inspections by at least 18 months. Now, we can't blame COVID for everything, although we do know that COVID exasperated this lag. Those inspections lagged even before the pandemic, but basically ground to a halt last year. Number three, on April 29, 2021, CMS issued a final rule to extend and make changes to the Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement, CJR, model. You've probably heard Dr. Hirsch reporting on, these, on this model. This, was a, this will aim to pay providers based on total episodes of care for hip and knee replacements to curb costs and improve quality. Hospitals in the model that meet spending and quality thresholds can get an additional Medicare payment, but hospitals that don't meet targets must repay Medicare for a portion of their spending. 
This final rule revises the episode definition payment methodology and makes other modifications to the model to adapt the CJR model to changes in practice and fee-for-service payment occurring over the past several years. The changes in practice and payment are expected to limit or reverse early evaluation results demonstrating the CJR model's ability to achieve savings. According to CMS, the estimated net savings so far has been $61.6 million, or a savings of 2% baseline. Uh, that's all for today. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks. Thank you, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about uh, nine and a half minutes after the hour, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan Fink, Sam David Glazer, and senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen, who is standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's May 3rd, and you're listening to a live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. For too many years, too many people have gotten condition code 44 wrong, completely wrong. An error that results in lost time and effort involving multiple departments in your facility. Fortunately, an upcoming webcast on Condition Code 44 is the single source of education to clear up decades-long confusion on the use of this controversial code. You'll learn how to apply Condition Code 44 correctly when you attend this important webcast. Register now for Condition Code 44, Learn How to Get It Right, led by physician advisor Dr. Julieta Garte Hopkins. She uncovered the reason why so many hospitals got it wrong for nearly 20 years and how you can get it right. That webcast is this Wednesday, May 5th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. What could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, that's a particularly good question today. Um, and I have an interesting story to tell, and I think our listeners can determine what the risk is. So one way to frame this is a story about me being wrong. But it's just as easy to spin it as a story about me being right. And while the details involve a particular specialty, the lesson has universal applicability. So a gastroenterology clinic asked me if it was permissible to credit physicians who supervised capsule endoscopy. They were worried it was a designated health service, which means you can't credit a physician unless the physician is personally performing it. Now, capsule endoscopy is a really cool procedure where you, where you swallow a pill and it films your digestive tract. I was pretty confident that it wasn't a designated health service, but to be sure, I grabbed the statute to review the list. The only category it's even close to is radiology services, including magnetic resonance imaging, CT, and ultrasound services. Now, capsule endoscopy does not fit within those buckets. Radiology procedures are listed with CP codes 70010 through 79999, and they involve radiation. Capsule endoscopy is 91110 and doesn't utilize radiation. It's visual. Everyone agrees that colonoscopy and endoscopy, which are also images, are not designated health services. So I was confident capsule endoscopy was not a DHS, and I communicated that to the client. Well, they promptly, promptly sent me the list of designated health services that CMS publishes annually as part of the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. If you're ever trying to figure out if something's a DHS, 
is a place to look. It's, as we're about to discuss, not the only place to look. To my surprise, capsule endoscopy appears on that list. So my conclusion was wrong, right? Well, I don't think so. And the reason is the legal hierarchy that we've discussed so many times before. While it's true that CMS has included capsule endoscopy on their list of designated health services in the Federal Register, a government agency lacks the authority to contradict a federal statute. The Stark Law very specifically defines designated health services. If a service doesn't fit within a category in the statutory definitions, CMS can't simply opt to include it. And I don't think there's a cogent argument that capsule endoscopy can be considered a radiology service. The only difference between capsule endoscopy and endoscopy is the absence of a tube to convey the picture. That lack of a tether doesn't magically convert the service into a radiology service. So what's the lesson? One lesson is that even when you find a statutory provision, it's worth looking at the regulation so you can be sure you know the full lay of the land. But I think a more important point is that not every regulation issued by a government agency is valid. You can't blindly rely on publications from the government. You always have to consider the regulatory hierarchy. So if you're looking at a regulation, whether it's in Stark or something else, consider whether the statute contradicts it. If you're looking at a statute, you have to think about the Constitution. In the words of the Beatles, you have to think for yourself. Do what you want to do And go where you're going to Think for yourself Cause I would be with you But while George Harrison says that he won't be there with you, if you want me, well, then you can heed James Taylor. All you got to do is call And I'll be there, yeah, yeah, yeah All you have to do is call So we're going with a double song day Chuck, happy eve of May the 4th And back to you Thanks, David, very much That was Healthcare Attorney David Glazer David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis Now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Sandman. Alan also has the Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good May, all. So what happens when a state votes to pass Medicaid expansion? One would think it means that Medicaid gets implemented. However, not if you live in Missouri. Let's back up. As of April 1st, some 39 states plus the District of Columbia, who continues to try to be a state, have passed and adopted Medicaid expansion. 12 states have not adopted expansion, and there are few enough that I can name them quickly. Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Kansas, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. Now, two states have adopted expansion, but not yet implemented it. Here's where our plot thickens. Those are Oklahoma and Missouri. Oklahoma voters approved a ballot measure in June of last year, adding Medicaid expansion to the state's constitution. Per amendment requirements, the Oklahoma Health Care Authority submitted a state plan amendment to CMS within the requisite 90 days of the ballot's measure approval, and for expansion coverage to begin no later than July 1st, 2021, coming up soon. 
No issues there. However, Missouri, well, that's a different story. Qualifying for Missouri Medicaid was a challenge, but this was all to change in July, just like Oklahoma. Adult eligibility was a challenge, but would now be possible. Childless adults were ineligible through the state's program, but would now be covered if they earned less than $17,700 a year. Roughly another 275,000 Missourians would have access to coverage. These are all wins, especially since the gains associated with Medicaid expansion more than outweighed the costs. However, earlier this month, members of Missouri's legislature stood up and voted to overturn the plan, claiming state spending on expansion is irresponsible. Even though the federal government covers 90% of the costs for those covered under expansion, actually make that 95% of the cost, counting the extra 5% for new expansion states from the American Rescue Plan Act signed into law by the president. Anyone confused? Well, I am, especially given the merits and savings associated with Medicaid expansion. Expansion states experienced major coverage gains and reductions in uninsured rates among the low-income population and within vulnerable populations. Expansion improved patient access to care, utilization of services, affordability of care, and financial security among the low-income population. Pre-COVID, expansion states experienced decreased mortality to the tune of 19,000 lives saved and overall improved health and behavioral health for those persons eligible. In addition, there was a 55% reduction in uncompensated hospital care costs, roughly $17.9 billion compared to 18% in non-expansion states. Just saying. The enhanced clinical and fiscal outcomes plus that extra 5% are big incentives to now push non-expansion states like Texas to consider changing their stance. The current Medicaid expansion map lives on the Kaiser Family Foundation site, and I'll be including that in my story in this week's Rack Monitor. Our Monitor Monday survey asks, what are your thoughts on Medicaid expansion? In favor? Not in favor? The verdict is still out. Well, we'll be back to the results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen. That was consultant and author Alan Fink-Sandrick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Monday legislative update. The legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, the Biden administration is doing all it can to boost the Affordable Care Act's insurance marketplace exchanges and make them more economically viable for consumers. Last week, the administration announced the largest ever annual funding for the Navigator program. That's the program that supports outreach efforts for the marketplace exchanges. The funding is double that offered the previous year under the Trump administration. Also last week, CMS published the final Affordable Care Act payment rule. In that rule, CMS significantly lowers the ceiling on the amount a patient pays out of pocket for healthcare services over the course of a year. The ACA payment rule also expands opportunities for consumers to sign up for insurance on the marketplace exchanges outside of annual open enrollment. 
the Biden administration had already extended a special open enrollment period through August for those that lost employer coverage during the pandemic. Under that extension, over half a million consumers have signed up for the marketplace exchanges so far. In addition, as we discussed last week, it appears the only healthcare element in Biden's American Family Plan would be a further extension of the marketplace exchanges premium subsidies that the administration established in March. In a nod to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, Biden mentions on the White House website that he has a plan for one, expanding eligibility for Medicare to age 60, two, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prescription prices, and three, offering a government-managed public option on the ACA exchange. So the White House lists those as policies for which Biden has a plan, quote unquote. However, those policies do not appear to be in Biden's American Jobs Plans announced in March, nor in the American Family Plan rolled out last week, nor were the public option or the expanding Medicare mentioned in Biden's first address before Congress last week. The president appears to be saying to progressives that they can talk about those policies, but he personally is not going to tackle them, at least not today. And for our sometimes segment, Things Go Better with a COVID Vaccine, the president of the European Commission has announced that vaccinated Americans can visit Europe over the summer. But on your flight over to those Greek islands, the Transportation Security Administration, the TSA, says you still have to wear a mask on the plane. The TSA has extended the mask mandate on public transportation through September 13th of this year. The mandate requires masks must continue to be worn at airports, on airplanes, and on bus and rail systems. Finally, Chuck, I'd like to offer a bittersweet goodbye to a certain smell that reminds me a bit of teenage nights and poker games. The FDA has announced it is going to ban menthol cigarettes and all flavored cigars and cigarillos. With the exception of menthol, other flavored cigarettes were banned in 2009, but the use of flavored cigars consequently grew. In fact, in 2020, more young people said they had tried a cigar than had tried a cigarette. So today we bid goodbye to the lung-killing smell of Swisher Sweets. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And coming up next, the very surprising results from today's Monitor Monday listeners survey. You are listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Over the past year, maintaining strict regulatory compliance has been a big challenge. A variety of factors, from a deluge of regulatory news to the deadly pandemic, make it feel like you're navigating turbulent waters. Now, more than ever, you need to be sure that everyone on your team, including those working remotely, is following the same guidance and moving in the same direction. A subscription to Rack Monitor Compliance webcast is your port in the storm. For a single money-saving fee, your whole team can access the full library of exclusive Rack Monitor educational webcasts featuring nationally acclaimed compliance and audit experts. Here's good news. You can get a complimentary three-day trial by visiting the portal page at Rack University. Now is the time for the results of today's very surprising Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Alan. 
Thank you, Chuck. And not only did folks uh, complete this survey in in mass, but lots of comments in the chat. I am so sorry, Idaho. Yes, states are stepping up to say we want expansion. It is cheaper and, but more importantly, better for our residents. What are the thoughts of our listeners on Medicaid expansion? Well, overwhelmingly more than half said they are in favor, 45% not in favor, only about 17%. Verdict still out, well, 37.5% with people wanting to see the dollars and the outcomes. Can't blame them for that, but they are overwhelmingly in favor and you will have more information in my upcoming article this week. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, the ALJs and the Medicare Appeals Council have created a perpetual appeals machine, and that's why we asked senior health care consultant Frank Cohen to look under the hood and explain how and why the appeals process is broken. Frank joins us now. So, Frank, what is going on here? What do we need to know? Good morning, Chuck. I want to start out by stating that based on dozens of years of direct experience, it is my expert opinion that our appeals uh, system is just in shambles. You know, typically a hearing in front of an ALJ was the first time that a provider really got a fair hearing on their appeal. Because the first two levels chalked up provider success rates of, of less than 10%. But after the ALJ hearings, it's closer to 70%. So, so the ALJ hearing should be good news for most providers, but it's not anymore because the government has found a way to cripple the ALJ appeal and it's called the Medicare Appeals Council. Now this is where appeals from the ALJ level are heard by a bunch of HHS judges. And even that description should cry out bias. The council deals with an administrative review of the ALJ hearing records, and as such is not even really a hearing, but they have the power to overturn the decision by the ALJ, and boy, is that happening at a blistering pace. You know, but how blistering? I don't know, because nobody last week returned a call that I placed to OMA to get those statistics. And, and the reason for this should be quite clear. The government simply can't afford to let providers keep the revenue they earn by providing quality care to their patients. CMS giveth and CMS taketh away. Unless you don't think that this came after HHS put pressure on the ALJs, don't fool yourself. Because I've heard in hearings, ALJs allude to this problem in their own words. You know, shortly after my last article, I got this email from a reader. I quote, I just finished reading your article. Today, I got a decision from the Appeal Council. I wish you can take a look at our case and write something. It is unconscionable what we have gone through. I have attached the basic things you need to see. I have cried for the last five years as Medicare completely ruined our lives. I read the council decision. It was, in my opinion, in and of itself, criminal. This provider spent nearly five years fighting an appeal and finally got justice when he appeared before the ALJ, but the council undid all that hard work. It disagreed with an independent judge and sent the practice to, to their demise. So I did some research and I read up on many of the cases that the council heard and the many times they reversed these ALJ decisions. And I was starting to see a pattern of, in my opinion, abuse. The council is going to create another backlog to the fifth level, just like levels one and two created a backlog to the ALJ. To the cynical Chuck, it feels like CMS wins again. What I don't get is where are all the provider advocates in this? Where's the AMA? Where's all the attorneys who claim to be on the provider side? How come HHS isn't being sued into oblivion? You know, maybe Chuck, we just run out of solutions. 
maybe it's time to raise the white flag. And if that's the case, then maybe it really is time for me to retire. So I'm going to close with just a little bit more melodrama with a quote from Edmund Burke. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Wah, wah, wah. And that's the world according to Frank. And may the fourth be with you, Chuck. Thanks, Frank, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the Director of Business Intelligence at Doctors Management. Now's the time for our Monday Q&A. David, do we have time maybe to answer one or two questions or at least comment on the questions we're getting? You bet. So, uh, uh, Dr. Hirsch, i got a question for you. So the CJR changes you're talking about, um, are those etched in stone? What's the state of those? They are our proposals, and of course, CMS accepts comments to all of their proposed rules. Um, but if anything can be as close to etched in stone, um, it's that. I, there's no way that the only ones that would protest would be the um, ambulatory surgery centers that are trying to increase their volume of joints. But I think it's a done deal. Thank you so much, Ron. And uh, Chuck, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you for being with us. Special thanks to our panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink Sandwick, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and senior healthcare consultant Frank Cohen reported our lead story. And one more thing before we go, when we're not on the air, you can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporter for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody, and thank you for starting your Monday with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.